There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Politicians and the media and most economists are obsessed with government debt now more so than ever. How many times have we been asked, how are we going to pay for the cost of COVID-19? But modern monetary theorists know that governments can create money. Government debt isn't an issue. But maybe there's a way to get people to understand that more government bonds isn't a problem. The easiest way is give people some of those bonds. Then they'll actually see that government debt can be a good thing because it'll mean extra money for them now or for a rainy day. In fact, those bonds could be their retirement plan. People's bonds, a good idea or not. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, Steve, we talked last week about the uh, impracticalities of everyone getting a job. It's uh, the, the idea of a job guarantee run by the public sector sounds like a good idea in, in principle, but is it actually going to work in practice? And we said probably not. Um, what would we do now, for example, when there are so many people who are going to be unemployed? Would you take an airline pilot and teach them how to, to do plumbing? And, you know, how many plumbers do we need if that was the case? Instead, there needs to be, and we talked about this last week, uh, some sort of halfway house, which would include some sort of universal payment to keep people alive and to keep them spending when work isn't available. And if we assume that automation is going to become more prevalent, then there are in the future, we'd assume, lots of people who just won't have jobs or at least full-time jobs. So that's one issue. Then we have the other problem. That when the government spends more than it taxes, we see that as government debt and we assume that that's a, a bad thing because we've been conditioned to think that way. But as we've discussed numerous times on this podcast, a government surplus is in effect taking money out of the out of the economy. It's taking it out of the private sector. A small deficit is a good thing. And right now, of course, a, a big government de- deficit is a necessary thing. So why not put those two things together, people's perception of government debt and uh, how we need to shift that and the need for money to pay for people who don't have much or who don't have jobs. Uh, and that's the idea of uh, the, of a people's bond. We know that government debt is issued as government bonds. Usually they're sold on the open market. Sometimes they're bought by the central bank as quantitative easing. Why not have the central bank or the treasury issue some of those bonds as people's bonds, which we give to everyone. Uh, so a proportion of the total debt issued goes to people. So people can then use it as an investment if they're flush with money, or they can sell it if they if they need cash. Not a bad idea, is it? Yeah. I mean, this is the sort of thing which, uh, you know, we, which the whole um, – uh, specter that we've created about government debt is because we think about it in terms of our own debt. And of course, if you owe money to a bank, you don't tend to own the bank you owe the money to. I mean, Donald Trump might, or maybe the bank owns him. But uh, for ordinary human beings, when you're in debt to a bank, you're in debt to an independent um, entity, which will, if you don't pay the bill, will, will uh, you know, if it's a mortgage, kick you out on the street. Um, it, it, it'll pursue you for the money. Um, this, the government's in a very different situation 
because the central bank is an, is an element of the government. And, and in fact, it, when it pays dividends, it pays them back to the Treasury. So you effectively have a government being this unique institution, in which, which is its own bank. So its debt is nothing like the debt that you and I owe, um, ordinary human beings or firms owe. It's something very, very different, but we still think about it the same way. So this is one potential way we could say, well, it's not that. We're just going to, uh, you know, uh, we can self-finance and we're going to give you the benefits of the self-financing. Yeah. A, a chunk of it. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, all government debt suddenly finds itself in the uh, as an asset for, for people, but as a proportion of it, it would it would certainly shift thinking, wouldn't it? And then it becomes another instrument, doesn't it? So, And, and the the beauty of it, I think, costing I'm talking about my idea here, so of course it's beautiful, but the, but the, <laughs> the beauty of it is that people are getting money when the government is issuing debt. So obviously it's at a, at a time when times are tough. Yeah, well, at the moment, times are extremely tough, as we all know. Yeah. And so now would be a great time to introduce it. There are tough, they've been tough for workers uh, ever since levels of private debt got out of control because one thing which turned up in my modelling of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis and then had the temerity to turn up in the real-world data as well is that as you have a rising level of private debt, even if it's the firm sector that's borrowing the money, even if the firm sector is borrowing the money just for investment, which is a productive use of debt rather than for speculation, uh, in those cases, it's actually the workers who end up paying for the high level of debt. They have a fall in their income share over time. I can talk about that if we need to elaborate it, but that's just one of the outcomes of, of my modelling of Minsky, which turns up in the real world. Workers have been getting less and less and bankers more and more, and it's all been driven by the increase in private debt. So what about we potentially use that uh, the government's money creation and the government's creation of bonds to cover that money creation. What if we use that as a way of putting money in the hands of workers who are currently suffering from the directions of a, of a fundamentally private credit-based monetary system? So it, it, it would require the creation of money. I'm just wondering, how is money created normally when you, when, uh, when you have high levels of government debt and you issue those bonds because those bonds are bought if they if they're sold on the open market it's just someone with money buying that debt it, i mean it's not creating new money is it? it's just transferring that uh, that government debt to to um to the, to the private sector so that so the private sector's got the asset of the bonds now uh, and, uh, and how is that creating extra money? It's not. And that's that's the point that um, Stephanie Kelton makes very well on the def- deficit myth. And like mm. you remember, you and, I, you and I have had conversations quite a few times over the years and you've asked me, uh, does, does a government deficit create money? And I'd normally, yeah. I, I, I hadn't worked it out, okay? I, I had, and my hedging answer was that to the extent the central bank buys the bonds, then it creates money. Now, when I did the uh, my... If you, did you see my classic um, um, palindrome, Omomo? Yes. You like, have you, you've done a few palindromes now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. As long as you're that's amused the by them. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a palindrome, left, 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 right, right, left, and inside out, which is rather cute. Um, but in doing that, I had to finally model the government money creation process in Minsky, mm. uh, which, of course, Minsky, I designed Minsky so that we could actually use double entry bookkeeping to model the dynamics of financial flows. And one claim that Stephanie Kelton made in the deficit myth, most, most of the deficit myth was, um, you know, very familiar to me because I've been a part of the non-orthodox crew on money for a long, long time. So it was a great read, though. Yeah, it's a good read. It's a very uh, easy read. Easy read, yeah. Exactly. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it puts a heresy across well, doesn't it? It does. And if I love one bit out of it, sorry, I'm interrupting you in mid-flow, in yeah. but one bit mm-hmm. I liked of it when uh, she asked U.S. senators if uh, they could do away with, uh, or they should do away with government debt, and of course they all agreed that that was really important. Then she asked if they should mm-hmm. also do away with government bonds, which would be the outcome of doing away with debt, and uh, they were all left very confused. So it did, I mean, it, it did demonstrate that uh, most people in government haven't got a clue how things work. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's you know, give them, I'll give them an out here. It's not easy. You have to mm. think in double and triple keeping terms and you have to see the impact of one change on another change somewhere else. So, and most, main, most mainstream economists get it wrong. And this is why we have all this confusion right now. If the mainstream actually understood money, we wouldn't have those conversations in the first place because it would be just, it, mainstream talking about money is like uh, uh, astronomers in the 1500s talking about uh, sunrise and actually meaning that they thought the, Earth, the sun was on a, a, a huge um, circle surrounding the Earth and it was rotating past us. We were in the centre of the universe. That's the level of understanding the mainstream has about it. Do you mean that's but- not what's happening? So um, <laughs> the, I must go back to school. So you better the, go back to school. <laughs> but so if, if the money's not being created, um, but we are passing some of it over to, to the workers, if you like, I hate using that expression. Yeah. Um, but um, doesn't that mean that, um, you know, that we are, in effect, rebalancing the economy a little bit. So the money that would have gone to the finance sector is now finding itself in public that's, hands. And that's why I like the idea. Because if you, again, looking at the, the whole issue of how money is created, the essential feature in, an, in a general sense that's necessary for money to be created is the transaction you're talking about must operate on the asset side of the banking sector and also the liabilities and equity side. If you have something just on the liability side, that's like me buying your, your microphone off here. Uh, it transfers money from one person's account to another. It doesn't create money. And when you look at the action of selling bonds, when the financial sector buys bonds, they're using money that's in the – using excess reserves, which them which themselves are being created by the government deficit. They're using those excess reserves to buy bonds. They're swapping one – non-incommending asset for another one, they're not actually creating money either. So your idea of, uh, of let's say, the central bank buys the bonds off the um, private banks, which is something that happens all the time now anyway, uh, but let's say the first, first stage is the government runs a deficit. Oh, look, I'm actually using numbers here in my Minsky code program. So I've got a government spending, say, $45.5 billion and taxing 42, so it's got a, a $3.5 billion deficit. That $3.5 billion turns up in my model in the firm sector account because they're spending on the firms and they're taxing just firms in my simple model. So the that's created money, which is in the firm sector, and that circulates amongst non-bank uh, institutions like you, know, you and me and corporations mm-hmm. in general, it also creates excess reserves. So when the bank, the treasury then issues reserves to finance the deficit, inverted commas, uh, what it's saying is we're creating this instrument we call a bond, which we're going to give you an interest rate return on. Uh, would you like to buy some? Uh, and the banks say, well, duh, of course we would, because we've now got three and a half billion extra money in reserves your deficit created you're saying and, we can and you're going to pay interest so yeah yeah, yeah, so, so yeah. We'll, yeah we'll, we'll take that deal now when the central bank then also buys bonds off the financial sector and that does the trade and market operations all the time it was doing this through quantitative easing and we're going to suggest a third way in a moment if the if the when the central bank does that then it takes 
bonds out of it reduces the assets of the bond assets that the banking sector has but increases their reserves goes in the opposite direction um, which, you know, if the banks actually want to get their money out of reserves because they're not any, any interest there. So the central bank buying it goes against what they want. But if the central bank did that and, and therefore it bought bonds so that it, it was now holding treasury bonds, it could gift those to the workers. It would take a hit to its own equity to do that, but that's fine because the central bank, as the Bank of England itself has said, can operate with negative equity. But if the central right. bank then said, we're going to gift these bonds to the workers, then its bonds would fall and it would be giving bonds which would turn up as a gift to the to the, um, work, the, right. the workers in the model. And just as there's a negative hit to the equity of the central bank, there's an equal, identical positive increase to the equity of workers. Right. But that process where the central bank is doing that, um, that is increasing the money supply at that point, isn't it? No, it's, it's, no, it's not. No, because um, it, it, it doesn't change the money supply. Because it, it's the bond the, when the central bank buys the bonds off the banking sector, then that is transferring uh, money out of out of the bonds asset that the banks have back into the reserves again. So there's no change in the assets of the banking sector. Remember, the point I said is that if you're going to create money, you've got to have an operation that occurs on both the asset side and the liabilities and equity side of the banking sector. Now, the the Treasury is selling bonds to the uh, banks all on the asset side. The central bank buying bonds off the banks all on the asset side. If you then have the central bank gifting um, these assets, the bonds, to the workers, that doesn't even go through the banks at all. But when, okay, so, when central banks yeah. are buying bonds from, from, um, uh, from, from other banks or from financial institutions, when they're, whenever they're buying bonds, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that tends to be QE, doesn't it? And that is increasing their, uh, the negative on their, on their balance sheet. You know, it's, it, they're, basically their balance sheet is worsening whenever they do that. So the central that bank? Because, the central bank? Yeah. No, it's yeah. not. No, it's not. <laughs> so why like, do they keep on talking? So why do I keep on seeing graphs showing that the balance sheet is is worsening every time that you know that the, we see QE increasing and they talk about rebalancing the uh, the, the balance sheet? No, because if you if the central bank is buying bonds from the banks and that's increasing an asset of the uh, central bank, which is the bonds, yeah. it's increasing the reserves of the private banks at the same time. Right, when you take a look from Okay, so that's a balanced operation that doesn't have any effect on the equity of the central bank at all, as in fact, because its assets rise and its liabilities rise at the same time. But for the banking sector, uh, what that means is they have less income earning bonds and more non-income earning reserves. And that, therefore, there's no change in the money supply through QE, but it then gives the banks excess reserves, which encourages them to try to find a return on those reserves. And that's where you start getting share purchases. They're very complicated mechanisms to lead to it, but in terms of the mathematical impact, no increase in the money supply, but extra money that's not earning income for the bank. So it encourages them to get out there and speculate, which is what they've done, driven up the um, American stock market in particular. Um, but your idea of, of gifting the bonds to the workers with the central bank was the one doing the gifting, then the central bank's equity would fall by the scale of the gift and the equity of the workers would rise by the gift. And no. I know which side, because, because the central bank can operate with negative equity, it doesn't really matter to it, but the workers getting more positive equity, that would be a, that would be a vote winner. Well, 
And it's taking money out of the finance sector and and out of central banks and and into in, into the into the real world where that velocity of money is going to be so much faster. So it's I mean that's got to be good for the economy as well, hasn't it? Yeah, it, 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 there's a whole lot of secondary effects that I haven't tried modelling yet. But one of the major factors that I've noticed in, in looking at economic statistics is the decline in in the recorded velocity of money. Now the velocity of money itself is a inherently badly defined concept because we simply uh, to calculate the velocity of money, we s- they simply calculate GDP compared to the money stock and the ratio is what they call the velocity of money, uh, as if the, that turnover of existing money is all that's actually enabling purchases to occur. But as you know, from my uh, infinite number of conversations, you don't mm. just buy with existing money, you buy with newly created money as well. So, and, the, and you simply can't calculate that easily unless you actually have real raw data to say that this was purchased with a credit card or a mortgage. You cannot distinguish whether it's new money or turnover existing money that's enabling a particular purchase. But what we have seen with the, and this, this makes sense to me intuitively. I've still got a try to uh, dive into the mathematical logic of it. But over time, the recorded velocity of money has been plunging. And one good reason for it is that people's response to being in debt is to try to hoard, hang on to money, uh, Mm. to try to pay their debts. But when you hoard, all you do is slow down how fast it turns over. You don't actually increase the amount of money. So the the, the rising level of private debt, I think, has been a causal factor in the declining velocity of money. Now, and that's because people feel themselves in substantially more negative equity given the debt they're carrying. So if you did something like this, which would giving positive equity to the workers, uh, that would actually reduce the encouragement to get out there and gamble and speculate and uh, could possibly Mm. increase the rate at which they spend because they're more comfortable about it. You get a double well, benefit for the economy. Well, it's that spend or save, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're issuing the bond, they've got the choice. You can, well, either you can hang on to that bond, which is, is in effect saving, you know, put put it towards your, your retirement plans if you're, mm. if you're worried about that. Or if you need the cash, yeah, then sell the bonds and uh, cash it in, and then you and then and then you have the money. The thing is, it's be, it's a bit of a leveler, isn't it, of, of income, and it's it, it's happening at a time when we're seeing an economic downturn. Yeah, and this is the uh, again the, the overall tendency in the system is for the. Um, people who rely upon a wage, they're the ones who suffer from increasing financialization of the economy. Uh, mm. the, the, the driving, this is actually quite intriguing. Marx got this right back in 1867 when he was speculating about a, a circulation system of uh, booms and busts in the economy, quite out of character of the rest of his work and, and uh, volume one of capital. And he finished up by saying, to put it mathematically, the uh, effectively, the, the level of investment is the independent, not the dependent variable. The workers' wages are the dependent, not the independent variable. And he's right. Uh, fascinatingly enough, when you put the mathematics together, as I've done in my model of Minsky, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, uh, the increasing level of debt uh, directly causes a, d- a decline in workers' share of, of GDP while having no effect on capitalists. So the increasing private debt, which we've allowed to happen over the last 40 years, has made workers worse off, and this would be a mechanism to make them better off. What would have to happen, of course, is that the government would have to get accustomed to the fact that uh, government debt was normal. 
that, yeah, that, yeah. You know, and this, that yeah and this is the i mean if there's one thing I, I want to actually write a blog post on this at some point soon and rather than asking how will we pay for COVID, ask for how did we pay for the second world war and mm-hmm. when you look at what happened i'm back the uk's deficit in 1940 was 40 percent of gdp america's deficit in 1942 was 30 percent of gdp how did they pay for it it's exactly the same mechanism stephanie's talking about in the deficit myth they simply when they spend more than they put back in taxation they create money and then when they issued the bonds to finance it, the war bonds, which, you know, how do they pay for the war bonds? The deficit itself provided the money that enabled the financial sector to buy the war bonds. Now, those war bonds were then bought by the public, which is the sort of thing you and I were talking about uh, before we recorded this segment. Then that actually destroys money. So if you sell, if, if rather than the bonds financing the war, the bonds take money out of the private sector. Now, if you think about, um, like let's say, say, say the workers buy bonds off the banks, well, they've got to hand money over to the banking sector, which means their deposit accounts fall. Uh, the banks will only do this so they make a profit on the transaction. Which, yeah. you know, they'll do it. And so the assets of the banking sector fall as well because bonds they own have now gone across to the workers. But that's actually reduced money in the private sector. So far from the bonds financing the spending, they actually reduce the capacity of the private yeah. sector to spend. And on top of that, they've also reduced the velocity. So, they've, you know, the double whammy. But could they? It could, it could reduce yeah. the velocity. But, it, but it's, in other words, selling the bonds doesn't, didn't finance the war. Mm. Okay. The deficit itself financed the war, and then the bonds uh, meant that the government could do it without running an overdraft with the central bank. That's really the effect of the bonds. But the money to buy the bonds was created by the deficit itself. So, but all this stuff is benefiting the financial sector and not benefiting the workers. And what you're saying yeah. is, let's find a way to do yeah, the workers turn, as well. turn it around. Exactly. Yeah. What does it do though? If 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 you have a, a, a certain percentage, I'm not saying obviously it's all all government bonds are given uh, given to the people. I'm I'm saying it's an instrument that central banks can can use. But what does it do to to interest rates if in effect you say well hang on a second this has been given away for free does it devalue the value of, of bonds does it influence I, I don't know the answer to that question I'm, I also raised as a second question should we do away with interest rates as, as part and parcel of this is, it, is the actual well, no, instrument the, of the interesting thing is interest payments on bonds create money yeah. And, and this, again, is something I only worked out by doing the Minsky model of modern monetary theory in my Omomo paper. Uh, because if you pay interest on bonds, and let's say you're paying interest on bonds to the uh, banking sector first off, then to pay that interest, uh, the, government, the, the Treasury has to borrow off the central bank to finance it. So and they then pay the interest into the uh, reserve accounts of the banks, and that money is also goes into the equity of the banking sector. So the bank bank receives the interest payments, and that means its equity rises. Its assets have risen as well, which is the reserves. You've created mm. money. So interest payments by the by the treasury on bonds is actually one of the major forms of money creation. And I don't know that modern monetary theory realises that yet. I've got to check and see with Stephanie and uh, and Scott and people like that to see whether they're aware of that. Um, but so if you then had instead interest being paid to the workers, then that would be the same sort of thing. The, the bonds that the workers own would now receive interest to pay the interest. Yeah. They put it into the bank accounts of workers um, and that would be matched as an increase in the reserves. So you'd be creating money as well by doing it. 
Well, you'd so, also want, you know, the, the workers want interest as well. If they're hanging on to their bonds, they want to, they want to see yeah, that. Yeah. That's, their, that's their source of income out of all of this. And there's yeah. a question then about whether, uh, and we can come back to this question because I've got another one. I'm going to ask you two questions. So we can go off this conversation now. I can go in two angles. So one <laughs> is um, that uh, do, we, uh, do we keep the interest rates set at a set level? Rather than uh, rather than fluctuating, in other words, do we need an open market operation of interest rates, or do we just say whatever it might be, two percent? Because the instrument of the central bank uh, is changing somewhat, isn't it? They're using in, they're using interest rates to try and uh, control the market, but with this new instrument, should they be saying, okay, well, one of our key things is to to ensure that there's enough money in in circulation and the economy is functioning properly, is how much money we give. To people in people's bonds, yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, yeah. So that's question one. The other side is uh, maybe this is also an instrument for how we pass pensions on to people. So yeah. we say, well, okay, you, your your pension is going to come to you in the form of bonds. That's quite feasible, and um, and and like uh, one thing I find intriguing is going back to the nineteenth century and looking at all the old romantic novels. Uh, the the um, uh, Wuthering Heights and so on and so forth, and in those the the, the women who had you know, had to find themselves a well provided husband in the in the in the class structure of of the UK at the time would actually discuss the acreage owned by the potential husband and the bonds they owned, mm. and the bonds we're talking like in, it's various times in in the nineteenth century. Of course, this is when England was the dominant empire on the planet. Of course, uh, the level of government debt inverted commas reached three hundred percent of GDP. Nobody batted an eyelid because that was, you know, money created to fight Napoleon, money created to invade India, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, that, and that money was, you know, is created by government spending and then bonds provided a finance for it, but the interest on those bonds was a major form of income for the, um, the, the ruling class of the UK. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. So take that and apply that to everybody. Then you've got a, a pretty good system of distribution for uh, for pensions, haven't you? And rather than pensions being tied up in, in companies or being uh, sitting in the government, it's already out there because it's been issued as, uh, as as bonds to people. But what about on the other side of this? Then, uh, if if the central bank is is there to control all of this, doesn't this become one of their major instruments? And do they really need to worry about interest rates? Could we could we just flatline it or whatever percentage we decide? Well, this, the, the whole interest rate thing is another topic we should spend an entire podcast on. But the belief yeah. that you can control the economy using interest rates is a classically neoclassical vision. And it, it, if you can trace it right back to um, John Hicks with his misinterpretation of Keynes called the uh, Mr. Keynes and the Classics. And if you read Keynes and by the, by the um, decades later, uh, Hicks admitted that the model he put together had nothing to do with Keynes. It was actually um, a, a, verb, a, a, a diagrammatic version of something he'd been working on in 1935 before Keynes even published the general theory. Um, but in that model, uh, Hicks ignored expectations. So he basically assumed you knew the future. If you knew the future, you knew what investments were going to make money, you knew how much money they were going to make, and the only thing that could change the putative value of an investment was the interest rate. Okay. Now, that is not the world we live in. We do not know the future. We do not have the certainty about what our income flows are going to be. And in that world, it's the uncertainty about the future, which is far more important than the interest rate you're going to pay. So by leaving out expectations out of his model, Hicks 
bastardised, cauterised Keynes and left us with a model in which the interest rate is the main determinant of investment. Now, that's what sits behind this idea that the central bank should manipulate the interest rate to control the level of the economy. It's simply wrong. Uh, the main manipulation the central bank can do and the Treasury, if that matter as well, is what monetary theory has, which is creating and change, or changing the amount of money in existence. Interest rates are relatively irrelevant. I guess, you know, an argument that would be given against this would be people saying, well, it's removing the incentive for people to find work. But it's not really, is it? Because because we're saying this is this is at a time when government debt is high, when government debt is highest, which is when times are bad, is when more money would be would be given out to people. Um, so uh, at a time when they probably can't find work, so it's it's sort of self balancing from that point of view. Yeah, I mean that's the, that again is the perspective that modern monetary theory has on what the government should be doing. It's yeah. there to balance what's going wrong in the private sector because I mean, if anybody after the financial crisis of two thousand and eight has to have it explained to them that the financials, the private sector can can stuff up, then stuff you. I mean, this is what I find remarkable about mm. reading about people like my, my good mate John Hearn. Um, you, you would have seen John Hearn stuff on on Twitter, and like John, just default position: government does everything badly, private sector does everything well. I'm sorry, the private sector did the 2007 crisis. Um, there are some things it does very badly because it gets into euphoric expectations, gets far too much debt committed on nonsense projects, and then expectations aren't met and you have a crisis. So uh, in that sense, you need a bit of a, a calming influence and the government's capacity to create money, something, it's something which balances that uh, um, euphoric tendency in the private sector. So if we look at the role of the central bank, I mean, there's a couple of things central banks are there to do. One, obviously, is to ensure that the, the stability of the banking sector. But the other one, obviously, is to ensure the slightly more important job of uh, the stability of the economy. And mm. uh, following this process, if we did have, you know, no fluctuation in interest rates, if, we, if they were just set at a flat rate, whatever it might be, one and a half, two percent, for example, um, then the central banks would only have the ability to uh, buy government bonds uh, from banks and decide how much of that that they want to buy and then determine how much of that they then want to pass on for free, in effect, to, uh, to the broader public. That would yeah. be their instruments. Is that enough for them to work with? Uh, it, it's, 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 it's certainly more powerful than interest rates. They operate yeah. much more directly, creating money and, and where you create the money is far more pow powerful and far more direct influence than monetary policy. Even, even as, as, as rap rabid and neoclassical as Milton Friedman, one of his most famous comments is about talking about uh, long and variable lags in monetary policy. And that's dead true. It take, if, you, if, if you try to change interest rates, first of all, you've got to do it by a huge margin to have any serious impact. That's what Vockler did back in the 1980s. And secondly, it takes time for that decision to, track, to rock through the economy. Uh, if, if, if you make a big enough change that it's really going to change uh, the calculations that companies make about what's a profitable investment, what's not, then you've got to wait till the boardroom a decision is made and implemented before you see the impact. But if you create money in the hands of workers, for example, as your suggestion would you do here, the next day the workers can be spending that money. So the, the speed of, of fiscal policy in that sense, which is what this amounts to, is much faster than the speed of monetary policy, where you define monetary policy as just varying in the interest rate. What does it do for banks? Because banks obviously cannot change their interest rates either if uh, if i've got a load of bonds and i know that they're going to pay 
two percent, whether it's been fixed or not. That you know, that's the rate associated with the with with, with that bond. I know what yield I'm going to get from that bond for the for the life of the life of the bond. Or I know what I'm going to get at the end of it anyway. Obviously, it's going to fluctuate on the on the open market. Then that reduces the ability for banks to say, yeah, well, we're only going to pay you half a percent interest on your on your savings account because people go, might as well uh, might as well just buy more bonds off people. There's loads of people are trying to cash them in because they need the money. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, this is one way in which government policy in general affects what the banks can do. And the banks have also got, you know, they've got their own costs of funds to worry about. They've got their own um, if, if inflation. Is, is high, they tend to put a markup on the inflation rate as well. Um, but generally speaking, the banks are constrained by what the government sets as its policy. And this is actually something you can find in Adam Smith. Adam Smith was in favour of government controls on the, on the rate of interest. Um, and the person who's putting the free market attitude that there should be any rate and no controls at all over what he called the inverted commas sarcastically, the crying, pardon me, the crying shame of usury was Jeremy Bentham. <clears throat> so Smith was actually in favour of controls on the interest rate. Well, there we are. So, okay, and you could see, this, I mean, this would decimate the banking sector, obviously. It would, uh, you know, there would be a lot less money swilling around in the in the banking sector. Huge opportunity for people who want to trade bonds. So I'm, I'm imagining that, for example, there would be lots of uh, lots of apps for people who are wanting to, you know, who've been given these bonds and want to get rid of them and other people want to buy them. It sort of creates a whole new market there, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it doesn't actually destroy money, by the way. Again, this is an asset swap. The central bank mm. buying the bonds off the banks doesn't change the amount of money in existence because it's, a, it's an operation that happens on the asset side of the bank banking sector's ledger. But yes, once the bonds existed in the hands of workers, then you'd have another secondary market. And the workers could be buying and selling the bonds, um, and, and when and, and those sorts of operations. For example, if the workers buy bonds directly off the banking sector, that reduces the amount of money. So um, you know you, you 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 have to again. This is one reason why when I when I listen to mainstream economists waffling on about the impact of government deficit, I know. They haven't modelled it the way that I do because they don't have a tool like mine, and they wouldn't. They have, no, none of them. I don't have he to get proudly. a contract from. from huh? <laughs> he said proudly. Uh, there he, he is. Proudly, yeah, yeah. Okay. Posting about his tool it, again. They, <laughs> they, they, it's open source. They could. They could. Like, I could let them use my tool. Don't you dare <laughs> run with that one. Uh, <laughs> it's staying in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but they don't even even know that they should be modelling money in the first place. So when they make their pronunciations about the impact of government spending on the economy, they're talking. Walking through the bleeding hats. Mm. All right. Well, look, we'll leave it there for now. Look, if in a year's mm-hmm. time, the world hasn't moved on and governments are getting deeper and deeper into debt because this virus is not going to go away, maybe there'll be some more air to this sort of thinking. Maybe people will start to go, well, government is now so huge. What do we what do we do about it? Because uh, hmm. uh, something's got to shift, hasn't it? Yep. Yep. And I'll pop this little file through and you can play with it yourself at some stage. Excellent. I can play with your tool. Marvellous. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you soon. (laughs) Thank you. And that's it. That is the Debunking Economics podcast for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back again with Steve Keem with another one next week. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.